God, we believe that your word is alive and it's active. God, we believe it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would truly do the work today. God, that you would show us the beauty and the greatness of Christ from this passage. God, I pray that you would invade the deep places of our hearts where, where Christ is not on the throne. God, that we might submit to you more fully today and that we would see Jesus more clearly. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, how do you know if you are truly following Jesus and not just conforming to cultural Christianity? That question was asked to me by my mentor when I was in high school. I remember exactly where I was. I was in Columbus, Ohio, probably still rooting for the Buckeyes, and uh, sitting in a Panera. And that question just hit me uh, hard in the chest. I didn't know how to answer it at the time. It took me several weeks of that question just haunting me, trying to figure out, how do you know the difference between truly following Jesus or just conforming to cultural Christianity? Years later, I read a book that targeted this exact question called Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman. And in this book, he uh, basically unpacks that question uh, more fully. And he argues that for many who claim to be a Christian, if you ask them to uh, describe what it means to follow Jesus, he would say that what you would discover is that many are not actually following Jesus, but many are simply fans of Jesus. And he would say that if you ask them, hey, describe what it means to follow Jesus, they would actually uh, describe to you what a fan actually is. It's an enthusiastic admirer. He goes on to talk about that people are simply fans of Jesus. Now, I was at the game last night, uh, Ohio State and Purdue. I know exactly what a fan uh, looks like. A fan is cheering loudly, is yelling for their team. A fan probably knows all of the, the player's statistics probably has a, a bumper sticker of their team on their car, maybe a signed jersey in their room, and yet nothing is truly required of a fan. A fan is never asked to sacrifice. Uh, a fan is never asked to get out on uh, the field and sweat for the team. There's really not a whole lot involved for a fan. And the truth is, for most fans, if their team starts to lose or have some, some bad season, most fans jump off the fan bandwagon and jump on to another one. A fan is just an enthusiastic admirer. Kyle Alderman in his book goes on to say this. He says, My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus, but have no interest in truly following him. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. That they want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. Now if that is really true, that the biggest threat to Christianity are people who claim to be Christians and yet aren't actually following Jesus, but they're fans of Jesus, then how do you know the difference? And this morning... I. I want you to ask yourself the question, which, which one are you today? Are you a follower of Jesus or just a fan of Jesus? I think our passage is going to do two things for us this morning. Number one, I think our passage is going to confront this fandom mentality towards Christ. This passage is 
You're going to perhaps make us uncomfortable about our own position towards Jesus. But not only that, but number two, this passage is going to show us what it means to follow Jesus. It's going to give us a, a picture or a paradigm of, of what it means to actually follow Christ. In fact, I think there are four key essentials in following Jesus that these first couple of disciples demonstrate for us as they follow Jesus for the first time. So four essentials of following Jesus. Number one here, we see in this passage, is a follower of Jesus, not a fan of Jesus, is enthralled with Jesus. They're enthralled with Jesus. In verses 35 through 42, our passage this morning involves day three and day four of John's uh, gospel, this first week in John's uh, gospel. These are the first couple of days of Jesus' public life and ministry. And two weeks ago, the last passage, we looked at how John the Baptist, his role was to to testify concerning Christ. He was the first witness uh, to identify that Jesus is the Son of God. And as a result, there's this chain of reaction that's taken place. There are these couple of disciples, these individuals who are starting to attach themselves to Jesus. Now these two disciples, the passage tells us one is Andrew and the second is an unnamed disciple, most likely John, the author of this gospel. And they start to follow Jesus. But notice how it all began for Andrew and John. Look at verse 36. You have John the Baptist who is testifying and witnessing about Jesus And he looked as Jesus was walking by, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And as a result, after a result of beholding, verse 37 says that Andrew and John start to follow Jesus. But it all begins with beholding Jesus. Look, following Jesus always begins with beholding Jesus. This word beholding uh, means something much more than just to look at or to see. This means to, to gaze at something in an unhurried fashion. It means to, to adore something. It means to, to pay close attention to something. That what John the Baptist is saying here, he's saying, behold Christ, worship Christ, adore Christ, be captivated by Jesus Christ. Like you'll never truly follow Jesus if the only thing that's been captivated is your mind. That what it means to follow Jesus is something much more than just your intellect, but it's your whole being who is being enthralled with Christ, who is absolutely captured by the beauty of Jesus. And one way that you can tell the difference between just your mind being persuaded about Jesus and your whole being is if you are consistently beholding Jesus. That as you're interacting with Jesus in his word or worshiping Jesus or talking about Jesus with others, if you're not only saying, man, I didn't know that about Christ, that's so interesting, to being stunned in worship about Jesus. That's much more than just learning facts about Christ. There's something about your affections, something about your desires about Jesus that's growing, that your whole heart is being captivated by the greatness of Jesus. Look, I think this is really helpful uh, in, in understanding what it means to, to follow Christ, especially for us who are followers of Jesus, and, and we're trying to, to share Jesus with others who don't know about Christ. That for many people who we engage with, our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends who aren't following Christ, many of them will not be persuaded to follow Jesus by, by having a flawless presentation of facts about Christ. 
Many of them won't be persuaded to follow Jesus by having uh, certain arguments about Jesus laid out before him. But what might stir their curiosity about Jesus is seeing your heart ooze with passion and love for Christ. That what might lead them to follow Jesus is observing a heart that is beholden to the greatness of Jesus. Parents and grandparents, this is a good reminder for us as we're interacting with our own kids, that as we're, we're teaching them about what it means to follow Jesus, are they observing a heart that is captivated by the beauty of Jesus? Or are we just trying to transfer information about Jesus to them? Like, are we, are we really enthralled with the greatness of Jesus that we are beholding the greatness of who he is? Like this is a key difference between a fan and a follower, a fan is just an admirer of Jesus. But a follower of Jesus is one that's enthralled. Admiring Jesus is just enjoying him at a distance. But being enthralled with him is, is being captivated by his beauty so much that you want more of him in your life. So that's one key essential that we see in this passage. Number two here, not just being enthralled with Jesus, but notice what beholding Jesus leads Andrew and John to. It's this commitment to Jesus. That they see Christ, and verse 37 tells us that they follow Jesus. Now, this is a great testament to John the Baptist's own humility. I mean, these were two of John's disciples, and yet he, he's pushing these two disciples to, tar, to start to follow uh, Christ because he understood his role. Now, allow me just to point out one small but, but significant observation about verse 37. Notice that they follow Jesus. They don't ask Jesus to follow them. Okay, it's a small but significant observation that I think separates fans of Jesus from followers of Jesus. See, fans of Jesus, they want Jesus to follow their own plan for their life. And yet a follower of Jesus gets on board with Jesus' plan for their life. As Mark Patterson says in his book, All In, he says, most people in most churches think that they're following Jesus, but I'm not so sure. They may think that they're following Jesus, but the reality is this, that they have invited Jesus to follow them. See, the temptation is, is, is to ask Jesus to follow your plan for your life, for Jesus to be just kind of an add-on to your existence. That if your life was, was like a pie, and you've got these different slices that represent your different priorities, a fan might have Jesus be the, the biggest slice of your life. You've got Jesus, you've got your family, you've got your friends, your hobbies, your work. But what Andrew and John are demonstrating for us is that Jesus is not just the biggest slice, but he is actually the filling of every slice in your life. That he's the, he's the foundation, he's, he's really the, the whole pie what they're showing us is that following Jesus means making a decisive statement declaring, I'm following Christ no matter what that means for the rest of my life. See, what they're showing us is that whatever you behold, that's what you actually become. That beholding Jesus leads you to following Jesus. Beholding Jesus leads you to making a commitment to following after Christ. Like this is a commitment that we have to make every single day. That this isn't just a, a one-time event, but our commitment to Jesus needs to be something that is daily, almost moment to moment. 
And the reason for this is because our commitment to Jesus is constantly being challenged in this world. That the world wants your commitment. The world wants your affection. The world wants your loyalty and, and your allegiance. That the world is coming at us with all these different temptations. They're saying, don't behold the Lamb of God. Behold having a successful career and, and in it find your true meaning. Don't, don't behold Jesus. Behold a, a certain kind of relationship and find your worth in that relationship. Behold having other people think more highly of you. Find your value in that. Don't behold Jesus. So you and I, we are faced daily with our commitment of Jesus being challenged. The disciples went through this. In John chapter 6, we'll get here in a couple of months, but John chapter 6, the disciples, their own commitment was challenged. See, in John chapter 6, we see Jesus who, who gives probably his most difficult teaching, a very, very confusing uh, teaching. And we, we read in verse 66 that many of his followers leave him. And many believe that these were hundreds of people who just walked away from Jesus at this moment. And then verse 67, Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and he asks them, are you going to leave as well? Are you going to fall away from me as well? And of course, Peter responds with famous words, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Look, if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to have that John 6 moment. You're going to have that John 6 moment of, of being confronted with, am I really all in for Christ here? Where you're going to realize that, man, the, the circumstances of your life are trying to choke out your commitment to Christ. That following Jesus is hard. That the idols of our comfort just come knocking at our heart. And, and man, th- this question will confront us. Do you want to walk away from Jesus as well? Because followers of Jesus, you're you're either in a storm or a storm is coming. And followers of Jesus, they stay committed to Jesus because they never stop beholding Jesus. So look, what what do you do when you feel like your commitment to Jesus is waning? Like, do you know the warning signs in your soul when when you're in that John 6 moment? When you feel like you're being asked the question and you want to walk away from me as well? Look, the disciples, they, they had each other to encourage each other. They followed Jesus together. Look, do, do you have people in your life who, who can encourage you, who can say, look, don't, don't stop beholding Jesus? I, I know you're going through a hard time, but don't, don't stop looking at Christ. Stay committed to Jesus. Look, followers of Jesus, they stay committed to Jesus because their eyes are upon him but they also have people around them that are helping them when their commitment to Jesus starts to wane. Well, they're not only enthralled with Jesus, they're not only committed to Jesus, but number three here, another characteristic of a a follower of Jesus is that their desires are, are reconfigured, that their desires, their affections, their longings are are changed by Jesus. Notice this really interesting and and kind of unique uh, interaction that takes place between Jesus, Andrew, and John. Jesus is trying to change their desires. Look at verse 38 with me. Jesus noticed that these two guys were following him, and he stops, and he asks them, what 
are you seeking? What are you seeking? It's an interesting question by Jesus. It's a good question by Jesus. These were the first words recorded by, uh, by John uh, about Jesus. What are you seeking? Other translations have, what do you want? What are you looking for? Look, if we were honest this morning, this is probably not the first question that we would expect the Messiah to ask us. And maybe if we were honest this morning, maybe the first question we would expect Jesus to ask us is, hey, what, what kind of sin do you need to repent of? Or maybe, hey, did you go to church last weekend? Or did you do your devotions this morning? We, we might expect those kinds of questions, but Jesus says, what do you want? What are you seeking? See, John, I think, wants us to reflect on this question. He wants us to know that Jesus is after our hearts. Look, I think this is an important question for three reasons. I think, I think we're meant to reflect on this question. Uh, so three reasons why this is important. Number one, I think it's important because we're all seeking something in our lives. That Jesus' question in, implies that reality, that each and every one of us has a, a throne in our hearts. And whatever is on that throne, that is driving our lives, that is impacting the priorities in our lives and, and how we think and how we live. And Jesus is asking this question to Andrew and John because he wants to know, hey, am I on the throne of your heart? Am, am I what you're truly after? Look, I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't stop asking this question 2,000 years ago. I'm thankful that Jesus is asking us this question here this morning. And if you can hear Jesus, this is a question that he asks you every single day. What do you want? What, what, what are you after? What, what are you seeking? And Jesus is asking this question, perhaps sometimes to confront what we are after and what we are seeking. Because many times what we want are not the things that we should want. They're not the things that we should be seeking after. And look, sometimes we, we don't even know what we want. Sometimes we're just kind of living life and, and just kind of going through the motions. This question is targeting the heart. Jesus wants us to know what we are seeking so he can enter into that space and reconfigure the desires of our hearts. We're all seeking something. But number two, I think this question is important because Jesus knows that our lives follow what our hearts want. Look, Jesus, Jesus wants Andrew and John to follow him. Okay? He's attempting to call them to follow him. But this question is not targeting the mind. He's not getting into an intellectual argument here. He's not asking them, hey, what do you think about the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah? He doesn't ask that. This question is not targeting actions and behavior. He's not, he's not after behavior modification. He's not, he's not saying, hey, how are you fulfilling the law? What are you doing to please God? That's not the question he's asking here. He's asking a question that targets the heart because Jesus knows whatever captures your heart captures your priorities. Whatever is on the throne there, that is what will drive your life. Because look, we do what we want. We do whatever we desire most. That's how God has created us. And what Jesus wants to know is, do, do you desire me most? Do you want me most? Look, our hearts is where our deepest commitments come from. Our hearts is where our treasure is. Our hearts is what captures our imagination. 
that whatever we cherish most, that's what our lives goes after. And so what Jesus is wondering is what is in your heart? What is driving your desires? Tim Keller puts this really well. He says this about our desires in our hearts. He says, you can't change merely by changing your thinking or through great acts of will, but rather by changing what you love most. That change happens not only by giving your mind new truths, though it does involve that, but also by feeding the imagination new beauties so you love Jesus supremely. That we change when we change what we worship the most. Well, Jesus is asking this question because he's, he's trying to enter into the sphere of what creates our worship, what creates our yearnings, what creates our longings. Because if Jesus is in that space, that's what drives our actions and our thinking and how it is that we live our lives. But so many of us live on this surface of, of gathering facts about Jesus, of growing in our knowledge of Jesus. And look, we need to grow in our knowledge of Jesus, absolutely. But knowledge of Jesus is just a vehicle by which it grows our worship and our affections for Christ. We don't just want to be head knowledge Christians. We want to be heart knowledge Christians that lead to feet knowledge Christians where we're living out what we know to be true and what we love to be true. Thirdly here, I think another reason why this question is important is it shows us that we should not confuse facts of Jesus with intimacy with Jesus. Look, this question shows us that Jesus wants to connect at the heart level, not not on the surface, not at whatever mask we're putting up before him. Jesus is after our hearts. In fact, in Mark, Mark chapter 3, Jesus is deeply distressed by people who have stubborn hearts. And in a, couple cha- a couple chapters after that, Mark chapter 7, he actually condemns people who worship him with their lips, and yet their hearts are far from him. Basically, these people who, who on the outside, on the external They're doing everything that's right. They have facts about Jesus. They have knowledge about Jesus. And yet there is distance between their hearts and Christ. And he actually condemns them. Look, this is a challenge for us to make sure that we're cultivating intimacy with Jesus. And look, it's harder to do that. It's harder to grow our love for Jesus rather than just gather facts about Jesus. That cultivating intimacy with Jesus demands an unhurried time lingering in the presence of Christ. It demands an intentionality where we bring the condition of our hearts before Jesus and we ask him to to change it. We ask him to reconfigure our desires. Look, to uproot false desires, sinful desires, takes a lot more work than just changing your mindset about something. it, It wouldn't take long for you to convince me that it's much more healthy to eat vegetables compared to Taco Bell, okay? Like, I'm, I'm almost there, but it wouldn't take much more for you to convince me that that's true. Like, I understand that, but to change my desires between broccoli and a cheesy gordita crunch, now that's going to take time, if not a lifetime, right? Like, our, our desires are so much more firmly planted, and the same is true with Jesus, that we might have our right thinking about Christ, but are we desiring Jesus the way that we should? 
takes time. It takes intentionality. And it takes lingering in the presence of Christ. Maybe you're wondering, well, how do I do that? How, how can Jesus change my desires? How can I cultivate intimacy with Jesus? Well, I think that's why this encounter is so important. That this encounter with Jesus doesn't just stop with Jesus asking them, what do you want? But it continues on. Notice the disciples' reaction to this question. They, they respond to Jesus' question with a question. They say, well, where are you staying? That's kind of an odd response. They answer a question with a question, almost to suggest, that's a good question, Jesus. I, I can't just answer you here. Can we sit down somewhere and, and talk about that? Can we, can we sit down and talk in an unhurried fashion about what I desire and what I'm seeking with my life? That's the correct response when we're trying to seek our desires to be changed. We need to linger at the feet of Jesus. Look at Jesus' response. He says, come and you will see. Come and you will see. He doesn't say, no, no, I don't have time for you. I've got work to do. Set up an appointment with me. No, no, Jesus is available. Jesus is always open to cultivating intimacy with him. He's not too busy. And look, this is the way that Jesus changes their desires. This is the way that Jesus changes our desires. That they come and they, they stay with Jesus Some believe that this was um, definitely all day, but maybe at 10 a.m. all day or at 4 p.m. all day. There's kind of split views on that. Nevertheless, they spend several hours with Jesus in the presence of Jesus. We're not exactly told what they talked about, right? But I'm sure we could could guess here. I don't think they walked in and started talking about the the furniture uh, in the house that Jesus was at. I don't think they talked about the new sandals that Jesus was wearing. But I'm sure that they started asking him, are, are, you, are you really the Messiah? Like, like John the Baptist, who we really respect, but honestly, he's a little crazy. Like, he eats locusts, he wears camel hair. Like, he's a little bit nuts. He seems to believe that you are the Lamb of God. Are you? And I'm sure over a couple hours there, Jesus unpacks for them that, yeah, he is the Messiah. He's come to, to take away the sins of the world, that he's come to be their king and to be their ruler. I'm sure in that moment, he asked them, will you follow me? Do you believe in me? Can I change you? Can I change what you want, what you desire? See, it's in this coming and seeing that our desires are changed, that our longings are are converted into things that we should really be longing for. It's coming and seeing. This This is an invitation for intimacy. Is coming and seeing. This is an invitation to spend time with Christ in a lingering, unhurried fashion. I, I wonder, what, what are you doing with that invitation every day? Can you hear Jesus asking you, calling you, come and see? Can you hear him, come and delight in me? Come and, and just slow down. Come and behold and if I could take this a step further and just share with us just a potential danger in our relationship with the Lord, something that I don't think is sinful, but I think is dangerous. I think it's when we minimize the coming and seeing and we prioritize the going and doing. I think when we neglect the coming and beholding, the coming and delighting in Jesus, and, and we get so caught up in going and performing for God, that our relationship becomes performance-centric, 
that we wake up and we go throughout the day and whenever we think about God, we think, what do I need to do for God? How do I need to serve him? How can I perform for him? Rather than coming and seeing, coming and delighting, coming and beholding. But so much of that, I think, stems from our culture. We're in a do-do-do type of culture that we assess our value based on our performance, based on what we have achieved. I think that's trickled into our relationship with the Lord. So we propped up going and doing above coming and seeing. But look, when we do that, that actually short circuits the going and doing. When we minimize the coming and seeing, we, we don't actually end up going and, and telling. And so look, this morning, do you, do you need to hear this invitation? To come and see. To come and, and slow down. Come and delight. Come and connect. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus has a similar invitation. He says, come to me all who are weary. Come all who are weary and heavy laden. Come all who are burdened and find rest. He doesn't say come who have it all together. Come who are performing well. Come who have a perfect church attendance, who are nailing their devotions every day. No, no, no. He says, come all who are weary. Does that resonate with you today? And he says, I will give you rest. Look, that's a, that's a type of rest that vacations can't compete with. That's a type of rest that relaxing and not working doesn't compare with. It's a type of rest where your soul just feels at home. Does that resonate with you? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where your soul just feels at home. It can just exhale. You, you come as you are in the presence of Jesus, and you come and you behold, because when you behold Jesus, you become like Jesus. Behold Jesus, you actually follow Jesus. College Park, I just, I just wonder if, if some of us are missing this piece of following Jesus, if we're missing this coming and seeing, this coming and beholding. Fans of Jesus, they don't want to come and linger in the presence of Jesus because the eyes of their hearts have, haven't been captivated by the beauty of Jesus. Fans of Jesus, they want facts about Jesus. They want a to-do list to perform for Jesus, but they don't want to slow down and linger in the presence of Jesus and have their desires reconfigured. But Andrew and John, they were captivated. They lingered. They were enthralled with Jesus and so as a result, this leads us to our fourth and last essential here, and that is multiplication. Multiplication. They're enthralled, they're committed, their desires are changing as they're in the presence of Christ. And verse 40 and 41, we see something here that, that Andrew demonstrates. He goes and he finds his brother Simon, known as Peter, and he makes an unbelievable claim. He says, we have found the Messiah. Right? Now this, in this moment, this would have been unbelievable. This would have turned their world upside down. This is something that they were longing for. This was something promised for thousands of years in the Old Testament. And now Andrew makes this declaration, we have found the Messiah. We have found the one who can forgive our sins. We have found the one who has given us hope in this world. He brings Peter to the presence of Jesus. Look, we see this perhaps maybe the most effective, maybe the most common way uh, that we can evangelize, that we can multiply ourselves is through friend to friend, 
brother-to-brother, family-to-family. This is like one of the primary ways that we can share the gospel and multiply what God has done in us in other people. But man, Andrew was such a fascinating disciple. Andrew, we don't know a lot about him, but he probably lived in his brother's shadow most of his life. Probably introduced himself. He said, hey, I'm Andrew. And people responded, Andrew who? He said, well, I'm I'm Peter's brother. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that kind of Andrew, right? He lived in his shadow. That Andrew missed out on the inner circle with Jesus like Peter, James, and John had. He missed out on some amazing events. He didn't experience the Mount of Transfiguration. He didn't experience some of the other uh, crazy miracles that Jesus did with some of the other disciples. In Acts chapter 2, the person that is preaching the first sermon for the church who leads 3,000 people to Christ is not Andrew but his brother, uh, Peter. And yet Peter was the vehicle by which Peter came to faith in Christ. He held no prominent position in the New Testament. Really, he only shows up three times, clearly, here in our passage. He shows up in the the feeding of the 5,000, finds the boy, right? And then in John chapter 12, we have these Greeks who are curious about Jesus, who are inquiring about Jesus. So what does Andrew do? He brings them to Jesus. Look, at all three occasions, Andrew is doing the same exact thing. He is bringing people to Jesus. That's what Andrew was all about. Why? It's because he came and he saw Christ. He came and he beheld the beauty of Jesus. Look, there is not a more objective mark of a follower of Jesus than one who is bringing people to Jesus. One who is multiplying what God has done in them in those around us. Look, so often we try to think through, am I a follower of Jesus? Am I just a fan of Jesus? And we try to go back to that moment where we, where we believed in Jesus for the first time, when we start analyzing that moment. Like, did I, did I pray the prayer correctly? Did I say all the right things? Did I include all the right theological truths in coming to faith in Jesus? And, and that's maybe fine to do that to a certain degree, but one of the most objective ways to know that you're a follower of Jesus, that you truly believe in Jesus, is if you are doing what Andrew did here and leading people to Jesus, bringing people at the feet of Christ. But can you imagine if Andrew and John had this several hours interaction with Jesus and they walked out of there as if nothing happened? They just went back to their lives following John the Baptist, fishing, and, and they, didn't, they didn't really bring anybody else to Christ. Like We would conclude either Jesus is not who he says he is or their hearts are not captivated by Christ, right? See, what, what resulted in this interaction with Jesus is this contagious desire to bring more people to Christ. Look, they, he could bring Peter to Jesus because he knew Jesus. And look, we are called to do the same. We are called to know Jesus so well that we are bringing people to the feet of Jesus. Look, who does God want you to be an Andrew to? Who does God want you to be an Andrew to to bring before the Lord? We have found the Messiah. What a claim. And yet the reality is, is that the Messiah actually found them. That Jesus found them, and as a result, they found Christ and began this wonderful relationship of following after Jesus. But it started with a question. What do you want? What are you seeking? What is your life after? Is it Christ? 
Is it the greatness of Jesus? Is it the Lamb of God? As we close this morning, I've kind of outlined kind of four essentials that are much more. But as we kind of sing this last song this morning, I just want to challenge you today to, to consider which of the four do you need to grow in? Being enthralled with Jesus, being committed to Jesus, your desires being changed for Jesus or multiplying. And maybe just make a commitment to the Lord of walking out of here saying, I'm going to grow in this aspect of following Jesus. Because look, I don't want to be a fan of Jesus. I want to be a true follower of Christ. So let's make space for the Lord to work in our hearts as we respond to him, as we respond to what we see in his word today. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this example that we see. Thank you for Andrew and John for the way that they model for us what it, follow, what it means to follow after Christ. We thank you for John the Baptist who was so faithful in declaring and witnessing about Christ. God, we want to be true followers of you. God, we don't want to go through the motions. Lord, we don't want to just have our minds stimulated about you. But God, we want our hearts to be filled with a passion for Christ. And so God, would you, as we sing, just, Lord, stir up our affections for you. God, that we would walk out of here, Lord, as, as people who crave you. God, people who want to just be in your presence, to grow in our, in our love for you, oh God. So Lord, that we might do as Andrew did and, and lead more people to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.